let's ask God to help us with his word. Heavenly Father, we pray now in your mercy and through the work of your spirit in our hearts that we would know the good work your word was given to do. Uh, We pray that this word would help us to trust Jesus for life and would equip us to live those lives of doing good you call your people to. And help me now to speak your word faithfully and truthfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been a tumultuous and sad start to the new year for many, as you know. Plans disrupted, homes lost in Gippsland and northeast Victoria and threatened even here, and lives lost in the fires. The fires confront us again with our powerlessness and smallness, with the uncertainty and frailty of our lives. At a distance, these fires in their extent and ferocity are unsettling and up close terrifying. And for some of us who had to leave homes on Monday or heard the helicopters passing overhead as the fireys battled the fires in the gorge, uh, they were uncomfortably close. Starting the new year this way with the smell of smoke in our nostrils and 20 metre high flames on our TVs throws up again the big human questions that are always there. Who are we? If it was all consumed in a moment, would our lives count for anything? And as we see destructive, impersonal forces sweeping away homes, livelihoods, prosperity and peace, there are the personal questions. Is this kind of world where we, is this in this kind of world, where can we find peace and security for our hearts? And if all we had was lost tomorrow, where would we, where would we find hope? Now in times like these, there's always a dilemma for a pastor. Do you change routine to focus on what's happening or do you keep on with routine? Both have their place. Focus, change, acknowledges the trauma and distress of what is happening. Routine gives needed psychological space from what can otherwise be an anxiety-provoking preoccupation. In the grace of God, though you may not have thought it as you listened, where we are in Deuteronomy, what we would be looking at normally actually helps us answer those unsettling big questions about identity about whether our lives matter. Oh, and they help us to find peace and hope. Uh, Deuteronomy 23 will direct us to those answers as we look at what it says about who can belong to the assembly, the people of the Lord, about what makes that assembly and the people who assemble distinctive and how that distinctive identity is expressed. And my hope is that if you're a believer in Jesus, you will know the comfort and peace of belonging to the assembly of the Lord and you'll be encouraged to keep on living out that distinctive identity in your current circumstances, whatever they are, fire or no fire. And that if you are not yet a believer in Jesus, God will be merciful to you by convicting you of the goodness and rightness of being amongst his people. No one whose testicles are crushed and whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, hardly a promising and perhaps a somewhat uncomfortable start to thinking about identity and hope. 
But what is the assembly of the law, which is the great topic of those first few verses? And why does belonging to it matter? The assembly of the Lord for Israel are those who can gather around the Lord to hear his word and be included in his people by believing and living according to that word. The assembly started with the Lord rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt and gathering them to himself at Mount Sinai where they heard him speak directly to them and there he entered into covenant with them to be a committed relationship with them where he, the almighty God, committed himself to be their God. And the assembly of the Lord continued to find expression in their gathering together at the three great festivals we've looked at, Passover, Weeks, Booze. There they gathered in the Lord's presence to both remember and rejoice in his goodness to them as his people. And it especially finds expression in the gathering the Lord commands at the end of Deuteronomy where the people are assembled every seven years to hear the Torah, this word, this instruction of the Lord, verse 12, assemble the people, men, women and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. You see, to be part of the assembly of the Lord is to be included in the Lord's people, those to whom the Almighty God has committed himself It's to be included in his covenant, to have a relationship with him, to be at peace with him. And it's yes, it's to have a share, in this case, in Israel's inheritance, a permanent place living in the presence of the Lord in the land he has chosen and given to them as his people. And it's to be able to live your life under his good rule, directed by his word. Being in the assembly of the Lord matters because the Lord is the only God. He is almighty. He can, as Israel knew, part the Red Sea, defeat Pharaoh's armies, bring water from the rock. What he wills, he does. He is a faithful and merciful God, a God of steadfast love who keeps his promise. Kept by him, His people are secure. Having his promise, they have a sure hope to be in the assembly of the Lord is wonderful. And in verses 1 to 8, the Lord gives regulations about who may belong to that assembly. And those regulations, well, they made sense in ancient Israel. For example, verse 1, eunuchs are people who are both seen as not whole and therefore not fit for God's presence and also those who cannot sustain the family unit that is in the heart of the the transmission and enjoyment of the covenant. In addition, this instruction actually discouraged the cruel practice of the surrounding nations in making eunuchs of boys for special roles in bureaucracy and worship. Or again, verse 2, no one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Those forbidden unions take in all those forbidden relationships in Leviticus 18, as well as those that have just been mentioned in Deuteronomy 22. Those relationships, says the Lord, will never be normalised in Israel. And those who embrace them in defiance of the Lord's command must know that their families will never be able to participate in the life of the people who are defined by having the Lord as their king, by commitment to doing what he's commanded. They've repudiated that. Now, I'm happy to talk about the Moabites and the Ammonites who were children of Lot by a forbidden and incestuous union. 
But actually, I don't want us to miss the two big points of this passage in the details. And the first is the obvious one. It is that the Lord is the one who decides who belongs to the assembly of the Lord. He decides who belongs to his people or not, who can gather in his presence. This must be so because it is his assembly. It doesn't have its origin in human initiative, human need, human plans. He and only he decides who can be members of the assembly of the Lord and he decides who are excluded. Only he can grant the privilege of being in his presence, enjoying peace with him and protection. Oh, and the second big point is found in verses 7 to 8. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he's your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you are a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. See, here we see people who are not ethnically Israelites, not even in the Egyptians' case, descendants of Abraham, can come to belong to the assembly of the Lord. They come to belong by committing themselves to the Lord, to live according to his covenant, to live amongst his people. That is, even though this assembly was constituted primarily by Israelites, by physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, ethnicity doesn't define even now the boundaries of the assembly. The possibility of the inclusion of these others tells us that even then this assembly is actually a spiritual body constituted by faith, faith in the Lord by receiving his word with faith. So the assembly of the Lord is both an expression of the Lord's commitment to keeping his promise to Abraham, that he would be the God of Abraham's descendants and they would be his people, but it is also a means of fulfilling that other promise that the Lord would bless those who blessed Abraham, that Abraham would be the mediator of blessing to other peoples here as they are included in the assembly of the Lord. As a fulfilment of that promise, the assembly of the Lord at Sinai and in Israel's regular gatherings also becomes a picture, a type of the final and complete fulfilment of those promises to Abraham, the fulfilment that the Lord brings through his son Jesus. Over time, as we know, many in Israel show that they didn't belong to the assembly of the Lord. They excluded themselves by repudiating the word of the Lord. They didn't keep covenant. They worshipped other gods. They did not listen to the prophets the Lord in his mercy sent again and again. But we also see in his word that the Lord was determined that he would keep his promise to Abraham. He would have his people. Through the prophet Isaiah, he spoke of a time when those excluded by the letter of the law would be included by faith. And I'm going to read from verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. 
And then verse 6, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Now these are famous words, words Jesus quotes, remember. My house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Foreigners and eunuchs would be welcomed in God's presence, included amongst his people by faith a commitment to the Lord's covenant, of the mark of which in the old covenant was keeping the Sabbath. Men and women, says the Lord, from all nations will be welcome. For the Lord is determined that his house would be a house of prayer for all people, that he would gather others to himself besides Israel. And this is what he does through Jesus. Jesus himself speaks of this when he speaks of building his church. Simon Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, when we hear the word church, we think of a building or of an organisation or of what we're doing here together. But it wasn't a technical term for the first hearers. They heard Jesus say that he would build his gathering. He would build his assembly. You see, Jesus is actually saying that his assembly is the successor of the assembly in the wilderness around the Lord at Mount Sinai. His assembly, his church, is the fulfilment of God's intention that his people be gathered to himself be gathered around his word. And this is an even better assembly than that one that Israel had because it is an eternal assembly. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Death will not stop this assembly gathering. Death will not exclude God's people from gathering around his presence which is light and life for us. This means that those who are in this assembly are guaranteed that they will live in the presence of the Almighty God forever. And the breaking of death's hold is guaranteed by the way people are included in this assembly. The basis for inclusion, for belonging to the Lord's assembly, is no longer physical descent from Abraham or successful law-keeping, it is faith in Jesus, sharing the confession of Peter that Jesus is Lord and Christ. And so we are included by being forgiven through faith in Jesus, through believing the gospel that he's commissioned the apostles to preach, that he's died for our sins and risen with authority to forgive and judge. Death, the judgment on our rebellion, our despising and disbelief of his word, our thanklessness and disobedience, Death cannot separate us now from our God, from his presence, for Christ has died for our sins. 
The Lord decides on what basis people belong to his assembly, his church, his people. And it can only be that way. And he has now declared that it's not through human birth, through physical descent, but through faith in Jesus. The Lord come amongst his people to save. Now to be a member of that assembly, of Jesus' church, is to be secure forever. It's to have identity in relationship with the living God, now his children and he our Father, included in the new covenant, an identity and worth that is not lost when all in this life is lost. Oh, to be a member of that assembly is to know peace with the almighty God who commands the winds and the flames. Peace forever, for our sins in the new covenant will be remembered no more, never brought up again in our relationship with the just and holy God. To be a member of that assembly is to have an eternal hope. For his people will be gathered in his presence forever, a sure hope that loss or death cannot destroy, for the almighty God always keeps his word. Now, the present wonder and security of belonging to this assembly, which I hope every believer here knows for themselves, to belonging to this people who are gathered by the Lord to himself, is actually seen in what makes them distinctive. The Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy. You see, what made Israel's camp different? What makes their assembly distinctive is the presence of the Lord God. He is present with them. His presence, as we see, is their security and their hope of victory. Israel knew that. They had experienced for themselves the Lord giving them victory. They were here on the banks of the Jordan because the Lord had single-handedly humbled and defeated the most powerful empire in the ancient world of that time, the Egyptian Empire. Oh, they had seen the Lord sustain them through the wilderness. His presence sustained them, give them victory over the Amorite kings. Oh, turn Balaam's attempt to curse into blessing. His presence was their peace and hope and their distinctiveness. And what was true of Israel is actually even more true of Jesus' church, Jesus' assembly. You see, our Lord, remember, says, I am with you always, with his people, and he is through his spirit. So he says to believers collectively, don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? God dwells amongst us through his spirit. And to believers individually, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Now think of that, right? That, that Jesus, the Lord Jesus said he would be with us always, that his spirit is amongst us. You know, that means believers are never alone, never forgotten. Their circumstances are never unknown to God and they are never with nowhere to turn because the Spirit of God is in us. That Spirit 
who assures that we're his children, crying, Abba, Father, in our hearts. That spirit who by his very presence guarantees our eternal inheritance assures us that the victory has already been won in Christ because he can come and live with us. And so that all that Christ has promised us will be ours, that we will be raised with Christ, that spirit who changes us now to be the Lord's holy, distinctive people. You see, the assembly of the Lord, the church, is not a human project, not a human club, and to, not, and to belong to this assembly, this church of the Lord Jesus, is an extraordinary privilege. Believers in Jesus do belong now through faith to his eternal assembly. He is with us now by his spirit and we will be one day be raised by that spirit to his presence in the new heaven and earth. And nothing can take that away from us for our saviour always lives and he is stronger than death. But the distinctive identity of the Lord's people, the reality that God is present amongst them, is to be expressed now. It's to be expressed amongst us now. And again, Deuteronomy tells us how. Our distinctive identity, the reality that the Lord is with us, has to be seen in what we avoid and in what we embrace, in what we practice. Now in verses 9 to 14, we see that because the Lord's, of the Lord's presence in the camp, Israel had to self-consciously maintain a state of ritual purity by dealing with nocturnal emissions in the way that God had already told them in Leviticus where he declared them unclean. And by making sure that there is nothing indecent or not proper in their camp, in this case, it's what many regard as unclean human excrement. But the point is clear that God's people have to separate from everything that's unclean because of his presence amongst them. But our Lord Jesus has made it plain, hasn't he, that what makes us unclean <coughs> is not what comes out of our guts, but what comes out of our hearts. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And God's word is clear that the Lord's people have to avoid such things. Listen to Paul. Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Put them all away. Anger, wrath, Malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Let me say, brothers and sisters, if nothing else, these fires should warn God's people that they should separate themselves from all that God says is wrong and wicked in our society. Right? We have to put these things to death. And we have to do that not only as individuals, but collectively. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 5 where he writes to them, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, an idolater, a vile, a drunkard, swindler, he says, you know, I've got nothing to do with judging out those, those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. 
Now we are a community of forgiven sinners, praise God. But God's word's clear that we must not tolerate amongst us those who think that being a Christian is compatible with keeping on doing things, those things, those things the holy God hates that defile his people. That's unsafe for them because they won't escape judgment. It's unsafe for us because a little leaven leavens the bunch. It's unhelpful to our community because it clouds and compromises our witness and it's dishonouring to God. We have to stay away from these things. And just as in keeping the Lord's instruction in Deuteronomy would have improved the health of the Israelite army, so keeping the Lord's instruction to get rid of what defiles will no doubt improve our health as a congregation. But the driving force is not the health benefits, either in Deuteronomy or Corinthians, not the health benefits to our life together. That's the fruit, not the root. The root is awareness that we are the Lord's people and the Lord lives amongst us, our holy God. Now, I hope, believer, that you are so conscious of the presence of God's Holy Spirit in you that you deal decisively with what defiles, that you do what Paul says, put it to death. And that's a decisive break. And I hope you actually cultivate that consciousness of the Holy God's presence with you every day. That's one of the things we do by turning to him in prayer, by reading his word, by giving ourselves to do his word. And being the Lord's people also have to show not only in what we turn away from, but in distinctive behaviours. Moses gives a list of commands which set Israel apart from its neighbours, every one of which expresses the character of the Lord in whose presence they live. And I'm just going to give you one or two examples. I'm, <coughs> I'm happy to, uh, to go through the others, but just, just one really example. Take this one. You shall not give up to his master, a slave who has escaped from his master. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, whatever it's, wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. You know, all the surrounding nations agreed that slaves should be sent back to their masters whatever nation they came from. It was a universal norm seen as essential for social stability, so important that a contemporary, near contemporary law code, the Code of Hammurabi, commanded the death penalty for, for those who harboured slaves, but not in Israel. They were to shelter all who fled to them. More, they were to give them freedom, where they were free to live wherever they wanted. And Israelites were forbidden to exploit, exploit their weak economic and social position because they were without family or protection. You shall not wrong them. Now, why is Israel distinctive? Well, think of their history. Think of their God. It's because the Lord, their God, frees the captive. He's the one who freed his people from oppression in Egypt. And to come to the Lord's land is to seek refuge in him, the God who frees from oppression. Oh yes, Israel did have some slavery as a form of debt relief 
where the slave was to be released every seven years unless he or she voluntarily wanted to stay with his or her master. But that's actually a provision not to deprive but to preserve an Israelite's place amongst the Lord's people. The Lord is a God who gave freedom to the oppressed and his people are to be like him. Each one of these provisions reflects God's character. So the Lord's a holy God, so they aren't to have anything to do with the abominable practices of the nations that made people cult prostitutes. Oh, they weren't to exploit people in need because the Lord is a generous God. And they were to keep their word. A vow, say, verse uh, 21, is where someone would ask God for something and in return pledge to give something back to God, an expression of gratitude for him answering their request. And they were voluntary, but God's clear, once made, they have to be kept. Why? God expects his people to be like himself, people who keep their word. And as we've seen in these uh, uh, verses, the Lord expects people to acknowledge his sovereignty in the distribution of property and to be generous by what entrusted to him. But the big point is this. Israel were to show that they were the people of God, the assembly of the Lord, not just by what they avoided, but by distinctive behaviour that expresses the character of the Lord in whose presence they live. As the Lord gave freedom, as the Lord was holy, generous, faithful and compassionate to the needy, so they had to be. And while there's a lot we can learn about what it is to love our neighbour from those verses, and as I say, very happy to talk about it, a lot the New Testament actually picks up on, we again mustn't miss the big point, a point the New Testament makes explicitly. And it's this, the behaviour of God's people the way they treat others, should embody the truth of the God in whose presence they live, should reflect his character and the way he's treated us. We should be distinctive from our neighbours because in our treatment of others, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, we imitate God. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up to do. We believers in Jesus, his church, should be seen to be distinctively the Lord's people by being like him in being kind, forgiving and loving. That's actually, isn't it, what Jesus says will mark us out as his followers. Loving as he has loved, as he has loved us. And so St Paul can characterise Christian people, a people moved to love and therefore a people who are always seeking to do good, not growing weary. <laughs> the love that is the first fruit of the Spirit to whom we have to give ourselves should show itself in doing good to everyone and especially to those of the household of faith. We should be marked out as a distinctive people by imitating our God, that is, by our love. And that love has to be seen. 
In the way, for example, we respond to the fires, giving, opening our homes, volunteering with relief organisations. Oh, in the way we deal with those who are weak and vulnerable, in our generosity to the needy, in the way we treat each other week by week, as we cheerfully and reliably, your yes and yes and your no, no, cheerfully and reliably serve. In the way we serve the community and seek to share the good news of Jesus with them, whether that's serving in GSF or Money Music or Kids Club or Youth Group or AFES or a myriad of ways of doing good and supporting and encouraging those who are serving in those ministries. A love that has its source, not in worrying about what others think, or in a barren sense of duty, but knowing the love of the gracious God who dwells amongst us by his spirit, knowing that love for ourselves. Well, it is a challenging and unsettling start to the new year. And if you're not yet a believer and have seen how transient your life is, how insecure every material thing we labour for is, able to be destroyed in a moment. Well, come and talk about how you can find an identity and peace that can last through Jesus, making you part of his church, that will actually give you life eternal. But if you're a believer in Jesus, hear this morning the encouragement of God's word. You belong to the assembly of the Lord the church of our Lord Jesus. You belong by his grace, by his kindness in forgiving you and giving you his spirit through faith in his son Jesus. And that means that you and I can face this new year knowing that the Lord is with us. It is the great distinctive of his people. That means we face uncertainty, knowing his purpose for us is sure. We face loss knowing our inheritance is guaranteed. And I hope, as you've been confronted again by your frailty, you know the comfort of that. And knowing that resolve to live the distinctive life of those who have been gathered by the Lord Jesus around himself, brought to belong to his church through his death for us. I hope you live that distinctive life where we show we know the Lord is with us by turning away from anything that defiles and living that distinctive life of love in your dealings with all and especially with the household of faith where you seek their good. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word and for all your word. Uh, we thank you that he can all turn us to Christ. We thank you that he is now the one through whom you are gathering your people to yourself. We thank you that trusting him, we have come to belong to his church, his assembly, that which endures forever. We thank you that belonging to him, you are with us now through your spirit and we are never alone. Gracious God, knowing that by your grace we live in your presence every day. Please turn us from all those things that defile us, from the sin and wickedness that you hate, and turn us to show we know your love by loving others and living lives rich in doing good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.